Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. I've always had a fascination with heroic figures and in the modern world there are few people with the level of skill and courage required to successfully land fighter jets on aircraft carriers. But a select few take it a stage further, embarking on a career even more hazardous, space travel. One such man is Jim Weatherby, a decorated Navy veteran and space shuttle pilot and commander. After a distinguished career, he moved into the private sector and quickly realized the techniques he developed as a skilled aviator an astronaut could be applied not just to civilian enterprises, but to everyday life. His book, Controlling Risk in a Dangerous World, offers not just a fascinating insight into his remarkable career, it also provides a roadmap to survival that all of us can learn from. A lot of us, myself included, have or had aspirations to be an astronaut growing up you're one of the minuscule group, you actually accomplished it. How did you go from childhood dream to actual astronaut? So good to talk to you, Dan. Yes, I feel very fortunate that I was able to fulfill my dream. I don't remember much before I was 10 years old, but suddenly when I was 10, I decided, you know, in the youthful exuberance of a child, I'm going to be an astronaut. And it, it wasn't, I think I want to be, or maybe I will be. I definitely knew I was going to be an astronaut. Of course, as I grew older, I realized, well, that's not likely. There's too many people that want to do it and too few opportunities. So I really set about doing the next best thing that I could do at the time. So when it was time to go to college, I decided to study aerospace engineering because that really interested me. After college, I didn't want to get a real job, so I decided to join the U.S. Navy and learn how to fly, and that was wonderful, flying on aircraft carriers, just the best job on the planet, including at night when the ship is pitching, so that was pretty fun. And I flew two cruises in the Mediterranean and then became a U.S. Naval test pilot, where I was tasked with testing new airplanes, the new F-18 at the time. And I absolutely loved that. And I realized after testing airplanes and having enough uh, flight time in high-performance jet aircraft, I suddenly had enough in my experience to apply to NASA, fully expecting to not be selected, but I applied and was pleasantly surprised that I and very excited that I was selected. So I had a wonderful career at NASA for 20 years. And really did get to fulfill my dream of flying in space, not once, but six different times. Um, So it was a great opportunity. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think you're the only person who has commanded five separate missions in space also, which is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, one other Russian has commanded five. He flew five missions um, back in the early days in the 60s and 70s. Johnny Bekoff was his name. Mm Mm-hmm flew five missions as a commander. I had five missions as a commander and one as a pilot. Twice to the Russian space station, twice to the International Space Station, and six missions in total. Great fun. 
backing up a second on something you'd said, I've read your book, Controlling Risk in a Dangerous World. Very good book. I've learned some good lessons quite recently from it. Thank you. (laughs) One of the things you mentioned in there was talking about your experience when you were in the Navy landing on aircraft carriers. And I've seen in movies and documentaries people landing on these aircraft carriers. And typically it's a nice sunny day. The sea's calm. Your book suddenly made me realize there's a completely different dimension to it. When the ships are bouncing around in rough weather and it's pitch black, it's dark. That must have been terrifying. So terrifying is not the word I would choose to use. And I'll explain this a little bit. You know, to do any job well requires three things. The trainers call them the KSAs, knowledge, skill, and the proper mental attitude. I developed the knowledge through the Navy in classroom, and they had just wonderful instructors that taught us how to fly. We developed the skill in either simulators or practice flights in the airplane, but they don't really teach very much about mental attitude. And I began to realize the importance of mental attitude, and by far it's the most important of the three. One night when I was coming down on the ship, and it was a particularly dark and scary night, as you mentioned, ship was pitching up and down. I could hear the voices of the other pilots going up several octaves. So there was a a lot of tension in the air on the radio waves. And I was thinking as a typical 24-year-old male, highly confident. In fact, my confidence began to outrun my actual capabilities, but I didn't realize that until a, a few minutes later. So I was coming down on final approach and I was thinking about my brother back in New York, he had a lousy job and here I am, I have the best job in the world. This is great fun. I absolutely love doing this. And all of a sudden I crossed the ramp on the ship to a hard landing. Now, fortunately I didn't damage any of the hardware, but I pretty well destroyed my psyche as I sat there thinking to myself, you know, sometimes the hazards are not in the external environment. Sometimes they're inside my helmet. And I had done this to myself, and I vowed as I sat there on the dark flight deck, unable to unstrap for about 10 minutes as I sat there shivering, I vowed to develop the proper mental discipline to stay focused on the task. And over the years, I became, I think, pretty pretty good at doing that. To what, what you do is you stay in the moment. You concentrate on the here and the now gives you the opportunity to see everything, feel everything, hear everything, make proper decisions, and you essentially compartmentalize and push the fear to the back of your brain. There's no room for fear, or as you described it, terrifying, because you're so focused and concentrating on the present. You develop a high sense of awareness of the here and the now, and so that's the way to develop operating excellence and to not have any issues or problems. And and so I had great personal satisfaction out of being able to develop the mental discipline to be involved in dangerous activities and to concentrate and stay in the present. Having then joined NASA, you were training there. And then obviously we had the tragedy of the Challenger accident. I remember as a kid seeing that there used to be a news show for kids and they showed every shuttle launch and watching that on live tv and it was obviously harrowing as someone there in nasa a young guy training and it's your intention to become an astronaut 
What was that experience like for you at that point in time? So it turns out the first launch I ever saw in person was the Challenger 73 seconds before it came apart over the Atlantic Ocean. And I had a particular role in the pre-launch environment up until nine minutes before launch. And once we passed the nine-minute hold, then I had no further responsibility. And so I was able to go outside of the blockhouse where I was to actually watch the launch in person. And I remember thinking how bright it was and how glorious this view was. I mean, it's just spectacular seeing a space shuttle launch, especially in person. It's unbelievable. And when the solids came off, at first, I didn't realize that it was a minute early. And I thought, wow, it's so clear and it seems like it's so close. And then I quickly realized, oh, they're not supposed to come off for another minute. And I knew instantly they were, they had perished. There was no survivable situation. So my job then became to get the chief of the astronaut office back to the bosses who were making decisions. And my immediate boss, who was the director of flight crew operations, sent me back out in a helicopter over the Atlantic Ocean to be on scene to report back what we were seeing and record what was happening in the ocean. Very dynamic situation as, as the wing would pop up to the surface or a half a tank would come up to the surface. But the only point in going through all that is I did the typical military thing or the typical NASA pilot technique, which is to stay in the present, to not think about the tragedy of the situation, but to execute my job to the best of my abilities. And then I went back, flew back and passed along the information to the decision makers. And I watched some of the best leaders in the world make decisions. And I also watched some leaders who weren't as as good. And I remembered who performed well in that situation and who didn't. And that really helped 19 years later when I became the search director for the Columbia crew who perished over East Texas. And it was my responsibility to go find the crew. But going back to your original question, I, I didn't really think about the fact that I am aspiring to be an astronaut. I had not flown yet, had not even been assigned to a mission. I just focused on doing the job the best I could as I got closer, as you know, the years went by and I was assigned to a mission. We tend to focus very heavily on our own mission and we must understand the technical aspects of the mission, how to work well as a crew, how to become an elite crew member to perform a very dangerous mission up in space. And I never really thought about the tragedy of the Challenger accident. My job was to focus on my first flight on Columbia, where I was the pilot on STS-32. And I can honestly say I did not think about them at all when I strapped into the vehicle. It was all about our mission and how do I execute with operating excellence. You mentioned seeing the takeoff for the first time. I've seen a few different shuttle launches at Cape Canaveral from a safe distance of some miles, but even from far away, most spectacular, intimidating, magnificent spectacle you're going to see. Just the sheer power of it. The lights, the sound is incredible. And that's watching it. You are in a little capsule sitting on top of that explosive event. What is that like? Well, you're absolutely right. If you ever see a launch on 
and many people have on video or even in person, which is a truly magnificent sight, it really looks like the vehicle is climbing very slowly and stately. But I'm here to tell you there is nothing slow about it. From the time that the two solid rockers ignite and the bolts are blown and the vehicle starts to climb, it's the most powerful feeling you could ever imagine. And it's very fast. The tower is visible out the peripheral vision of the commander. And it just drops away and you're gone in an instant. It's unbelievable how powerful this thing is. So at the time we had right at liftoff, we weighed four and a half million pounds. Inside the crew compartment, I weigh 190 pounds plus an 85 pound pressure suit for a total of 270 times two Gs. Instantly you weigh about 540 pounds sitting in your seat. But again, you don't really think of the physical aspect of it until much later, until after you're on orbit. It does register the power and the, the vibration going uphill registers in your brain's recorder, but you're really focusing on the engine instruments, the displays, the checklist, making sure we're achieving the proper energy margins to either abort across the Atlantic Ocean or abort to orbit or, or finally get to orbit. So I focused on the job at hand. Five minutes after you're on orbit, when you finally have the power to come out of this mental hyper state of vigilance and focus, my first thought on all after all six launches was, oh man, what a ride. It just pushes you so hard in the seat. It's just unbelievable. The, the force and the vibration, just spectacular. And the sights that you can see, just eye-watering. And then... Once you're in space, you talked about the fact that on television it looks as if it's this slow rise when actually it's not at all. Similarly, you know, I've seen footage of space shuttles seeming to just slowly drift along and politely connect with the mere space station or what have you. But in reality, there's nothing slow about that process. Exactly. So... But the sensation that the human has is actually the reverse. So up on orbit, we're traveling at 17,500 miles an hour. So we're really zorching across the surface of the Earth very quickly. And you see the Earth blowing by. I mean, the sense of speed is just incredible. But when you go up to dock with a space station, the task is a little bit different. You don't have the sense of the speed because you're both traveling at the same speed. Our task as the commander when we're docking is to bring our two vehicles that both weigh 100 tons and are essentially, at that time, 145 feet long, to bring them together plus or minus three inches in the X and Y direction and a closing velocity of a tenth of a foot per second relative to each other plus or minus one hundredth of a foot per second. So it looks like you're moving very slowly. Even though you are traveling very fast, you get the opposite impression. It looks like it's coming in very slowly. In fact, if you fly more slowly and more in control, then you have fewer problems. If you tend to get behind and you suddenly hit too hard, it's not a mistake that you made in the last 10 seconds. It's a mistake you made two minutes ago. It's like taking a big ocean liner into a dock. You have to be very careful and you have to anticipate. Your brain is working very fast as you're integrating all the information and processing it and deciding how much of an impulse to impart into the vehicle and bring it together. But I'll tell you, the American engineers who designed the system did a very good job and it is immensely controllable. 
just a joy to fly. The challenge is the mental challenge of what do I do if I lose a computer or what do I do if I lose a jet or what if the jet sticks on and start to close on the station too hard? How do I bail out? How do I get out of a dangerous situation? What if I suddenly lose reaction control system and I lose propellant? Those kinds of things are always going on in your mind as you're controlling the vehicle. So that's the trick. It's not so much a hand-eye coordination thing. It's more of a mental challenge to perform well. Going back to your book, Controlling Risk in a Dangerous World, you talk a lot in that about mental preparation and so forth. But originally, all of the astronauts were, like yourself, highly skilled aviators, test pilots, used to these intense situations, no margin for error, all the calculated risks. On the space shuttle, though, they broadened the crew to where you had people whose day job might be sitting in a laboratory studying bacteria. Suddenly they're in that kind of dangerous environment with someone like you who has those requisite skills. Was there ever any challenge integrating the civilians into the astronaut program? Well, I actually had that opportunity to to work a significant challenge. I had flown four times in my career. My boss looked at me, he was running all of human space flight, and he said, you know, we're not operating as safely as we should. I'd like you to become the director of flight crew operations. And the only thing he told me was, don't let them have an accident. So the first thing I did after taking command of 150 type A personalities who were the world's best at whatever they did, the first thing I decided to do was, how, how did we get into the situation where we're not operating as safely? And what we realized very quickly was exactly what you said. If we went back and thought in 1959, NASA hired from cadre of military test pilots, specifically because that's the group that innately understood the principles of operating excellence, flight operations excellence. We didn't have time to train people to understand the kinds of things that you're talking about. But over the years, as you mentioned, we did begin to hire more and more scientists, doctors, engineers, number one in their field, best in everything they've ever done, but they didn't really understand innately the principles of flight operations excellence in dangerous environments. And so we wrote down the principles of operating excellence and then developed the techniques that we should be using. That was my job, and that's how I ended up writing the book. It's the 30 techniques of operating excellence that we developed in the astronaut office to help people who didn't really grow up in an aviation background to understand the ways to not only prevent all accidents, but also to be more productive and uh, increase performance on orbit because we're operating with higher quality. So it was a challenge, but once you define and describe the techniques of operating excellence, they were very quick learners and and we get out of that situation pretty well Mm -hmm. just wonderful people really smart and they did pick up on it very quickly on your first flight despite meticulous preparation there was one mishap yeah so that was probably the the least dangerous but probably the funniest we did have some other significant issues on that flight you know before we launched my commander looked at me and he said you know there's only three things you don't want to have happen in space to have a fire, to lose cabin pressure, or to be spun out of control. And we had all three of those on that mission. 
but the one you're talking about was what turned out to be a water leak. My commander was, we were on orbit and he was looking down in the bilges where the lithium hydroxide canisters, where we scrub CO2 out of the atmosphere so that we can function for two weeks in a closed environment. And he saw that the humidity separator, which is designed to take humidity out of the atmosphere and dump it into a wastewater tank, was beginning to leak. And in fact, there were large bubbles of water that were starting to leach onto systems. You know, without the abs- with, with the absence of gravity, water will tend to, if it's free-floating, form a, a sphere because of the surface tension. But And it will sort of oscillate. But if it attaches itself to something, it will leach down and it will start to soak into electronic equipment, computers and such. So it's a potentially dangerous situation. My boss looked at me, Dan Branistein, and he said, whether we go get the water cleanup kit, it's exactly analogous to a a wet vacuum in your garage where you use it to clean up spills in your garage, for example. And it's the only time in my career that I thought the situation was dire enough that I had to operate quickly and execute the procedures without taking the time to go and get the checklist. That's the last time I ever did that. Because what I forgot to do when I hooked up quick disconnect to the nozzle intended to vacuum up the water was that I forgot to depressurize the wastewater tank. And so as soon as I hooked it up, I got some backflow from the wastewater and it came out the nozzle in a slug of water about a foot long, floating fairly slowly, but going right across the cockpit directly towards the head of my revered commander. And... Fortunately, he saw it coming and he kind of ducked out of the way and the slug of water hit the bulkhead and exploded into disgustingness. And he just kind of looked at me and the, the look on his face was was more foul smelling than the water. But we quickly recovered and mopped it up. He had a, an ingenious solution once we cleaned up the water because the, the humidity separator was still leaking where he taped a towel to the place where it was leaking so the water would glom onto the towel and then so you didn't have a wet towel floating around he taped over long plastic container bag over that and so once a day we would or multiple times a day we would take the wet towel out and hang it up the water would evaporate into the air would go back into the humidity separator and leak into the new towel and start the process all over what i learned was there's no emergency that's too dire Well, there's a couple that you must be very quick, but really you need to use the checklist because you might forget a critical step. It's funny too then. So even surrounded by all this high technology, sometimes a bit of rudimentary handyman sort of logic helps to clean things up as well. Yep. Duct tape and plastic bags and towels. They work wonders. Now, one other thing I had, I guess, made an assumption about, and probably a lot of people do, because you think about all the training you've been through, the selection process, the danger you face. I always imagine this would be a pretty lucrative career, but I've heard indications that actually that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was active duty military at the time, U.S. Navy, and so I was getting standard military officer's pay. I calculated recently, somebody asked me the question, and I calculated the my annual salary at the time, I think was something like $36,000 in today's dollars, it would be the equivalent of about $70,000. We had no hazardous duty pay, no commanded sea pay, no extra pay of any kind, with the exception of an administrative increase in pay 
which amounted to $2 per day. And I was in space for a total of 13 days on my first mission. They did pay my wife to drive me 10 miles to the airport to get on the airplane to go to the launch control uh, down in Florida. And they had to pay her, obviously, to get the car home. So that was another couple of dollars in gas money. So after my first mission, my extra pay that I received was like $43.60, something like that, for flying up in space on a, on a particularly dangerous mission. So I took my family out for Happy Meals as a celebration with the extra pay. I read in your book, just coming back to that again, it's a great source of information, that NASA had developed this theory that they thought the chances of an accident were about 1 in 10,000 in terms of the space shuttles and rockets and so forth. Obviously, that reality was completely different. So by the time Columbia happened, not that long in terms of number of missions after Challenger, in your book you talk about things like when the executive governance stopped pushing projects along, lose touch with the people on the ground doing the work. Do you think those kind of breakdowns had an impact on the Columbia? There's no way to say for sure, but I speculate that those kinds of executive influences affect every company, especially ones that have accidents. The executives are doing what they think is required for their job. And so their job is to be encourage the workforce to be productive. But they really have to be careful about how they encourage the workforce. Executives who tend to focus on results, and there's nothing wrong with results. That is the bottom line of a company. Any any endeavor, it is the most important thing. You're trying to achieve goals and accomplish missions and do things. But what the executives need to realize is that there's no single operator or person in the company who achieves results. What they do is conduct activities. And so if the executive would rather come in and say, look, we're a little behind last quarter. We got to improve our production numbers next quarter. That's fine. The workforce needs to know how do we stand relative to competitors? How are we doing on the bottom line? But the very next paragraph out of their mouth should be, and here's how we're going to the quality of our results. We're going to work on the quality of our individual activities, and I'm going to help you work better to work smarter. Here's how we can improve the quality of what we're doing. That's how you end up with better results. You know, results are nothing more than an integration of many activities over a long period of time. And by the way, a single poor quality activity can create disastrous results, especially in a dangerous business. Right now, we have space tourism is suddenly a thing we have elon musk he wants to build a colony on mars we have russia china america with the space force we're looking at weaponizing space where do you think our focus should be in terms of how we interact with and utilize space technology the first question is should we go into space and i absolutely believe that we should and there are about five different reasons why we should continue to go into space number one technological advancements which keep our country strong. We have the benefits of the space program in all kinds of technology, GPS satellites and communication. Just about anything you look in a room, you can find something that was developed long ago for the space program. 
Secondly, biomedical advancements, if we learn how the body works in space, we can help people on Earth with diseases down here. We should be an inspiration to students and, and young people to become engineers and doctors and scientists. We need a safe haven in case we do get hit by an asteroid someday. We want to have the ability to be living and operating in space. And then finally, I think it's our human destiny to explore and to try to increase our knowledge. So that's why I think we should go into space. I think the space program now is in a natural progression that we see in all kinds of industries and transportation in the past, where now it's time to privatize, allow civilian companies to try to make money in space, to create products in space, to have industry in space, including space tourism. I think that's coming, and we just have to make sure that we're doing it correctly, that we don't lose sight of the fact that it's a very dangerous business, and you cannot cheat the gods of engineering and physics. The laws of engineering and physics will not be denied, so you really have to do it properly with high quality and operating excellence. So I'm all for Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos has got a great facility where he's fabricating some rockets down at the Cape, and we do intend to have industries in low-Earth orbit and then to the moon, and then on to Mars someday. So it's a pretty exciting time to be alive, especially if you're young and thinking about joining the space program. I would say absolutely yes, do so. On the book, Controlling Risk in a Dangerous World, beyond obviously the Navy and NASA, you also have in their private sector experience as well. The thing I like about the book is that whilst much of it was obviously formed from your time in the military and NASA, it's very applicable to everyday life. How did you manage to take what you had done originally, say after Challenger and Columbia, and make it so applicable that anybody in any job can benefit from reading the book? When I was near the end of my career at NASA, I knew I had a lot of information. I wanted to stick around and train other astronauts. I decided to look for companies that could benefit from the same kinds of techniques of operating excellence. At the time, I thought they were just applicable to the space program. But as soon as I joined the oil and gas industry and was sent various places around the world, up in Alaska, we were in Indonesia, and my job was as a safety auditor was specifically to identify deficiencies that we had so that the different businesses could correct the deficiencies but I also was responsible for helping some of them recover after accidents. I, I had a lot of experience in accident recovery, that kind of thing. I quickly began to realize that the same techniques we used in the space program apply to the oil and gas industry. In fact, it's the same hydrocarbons that we're using as explosive propellant in one um, sector and trying to contain and put into tanks and sell in the other sector, but it's the same kind of risks. We had the same kind of equipment, so it's the same techniques of operating excellence. And then over the years, I began to realize, well, it really applies to driving a car. You know, we had a fatality up in Alaska with somebody who was hit by his own car when he was inspecting a pipeline. It occurred to me that these same techniques could apply to anybody that's doing anything on the planet in a dangerous environment. And in fact, all of us at one point in our day or another, the most common is probably driving a car. One of the techniques that we use is to stay in the present and search for vulnerabilities, maintain awareness, and anticipate the changing shape of risk. So if you master that technique, I can almost guarantee you're not going to have a car accident. So I've been driving for whatever, 40, 50 years. I've never had a car accident because I stay in the moment. I don't think about 
the meeting that I'm late for or my arrogant boss or why did he yell at me or, or something else, I stay in the moment and I try to focus on the other hazards around me and I try to remember that all these other drivers, either intentionally or unintentionally, are trying to kill me and I'm not going to let that happen. And so these same techniques apply to just about anything. That's one of the things that I particularly liked about the book. Simple examples. In your neighborhood, the risk of driving down a road if somebody came the other way, there's not really a lot of options. I found it very practical. Coming from a completely different industry, I could see the mechanics of it or how you broke it down. I thought it was um, excellent. Very recommendable book. Thank you. Other examples too, like if you're in a hotel and there's a fire... Do you know where the exits are? Can you find them with your eyes closed? Because there may be toxic smoke that you can't open your eyes and you got to get out quickly. And so can you find the exit with your eyes closed? Those kinds of things. I would probably be stumbling around in the dark. Well, the other thing is, you know, most people who succumb in a fire, they don't die from the flames. They die from the toxic fume. And so if you're in a hotel, for example, one of the best techniques you can use is to crawl out of the hotel don't stand because a lot of the fumes are up at nose level when you're walking but you might have clearer air down on the ground so you also want to be able to find the exits while you're crawling it's fairly easy to identify the known risks now but how do we find the unknown risks that could evolve it's a very challenging thing to do i once had an executive in aeronautical company ask me how do we find the next accident if we don't know where to look the answer is sort of the holy grail of what we're trying to do in operating excellences and i'll say it very quickly and simply but it's not so simple to do the answer is if you follow the principles of operating excellence then you will be preventing all accidents, including ones that you think are unpredictable or unpreventable by virtue of the fact that you're doing things in the right way for the right reasons, and so then you never have trouble. There are other techniques to identify the very small divergences from normal expected patterns of behavior. The quicker you can identify these divergences, and it's a very challenging thing to do, the more easy and the more quick the solution can be to avoid or predict and prevent the next accident. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.